Well, good morning. Welcome to Campus House. My name's Rick. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here with us this morning. And if you're taking classes, I hope they're going well as you are cruising through those. If you're visiting for the first time, we're glad that you're here with us. And if you're here and you've been here all summer already and maybe all year, it's just great to be together, to come back again on a Sunday morning and remember who God is and why we're here. And this summer, we're going through a sermon series based on the book of Psalms. We're not doing every psalm because there's 150 of them. So we're doing a few select psalms, and we're calling this sermon series Backstory. And so each week, we're going through one of the psalms and considering the psalms are mostly prayers or songs that are sung for worship. And we're considering uh, what is the backstory or what would this prayer or this song be used for? You know, we never simply pray or sing in a vacuum, do we? Like, it's not an abstract concept. We're not praying to an abstract concept. Our lives, the things we pray about, are not just abstract ideas. They are realities that we face. So what prompts prayer? What circumstances? What relationships? What thoughts and experiences that you've had um, cause us to pray? Every prayer we pray has a backstory. Every prayer has something behind it that has caused us to come to God. And that's true about every single psalm in the book of Psalms, which is the prayer book of the Old Testament. It's right in the middle of your Bible. Um, and there's 150 of them. And even if some of them don't specify directly the actual circumstance of the person who's writing it, they still hint at a reality that we face or a condition that we have or a story that we could probably relate to. And what we are meant to see is that these are prayers of real people intended to help us consider our own lives and how we can come to God in any and every circumstance with every kind of thought or feeling. And he's not surprised by it. In fact, he welcomes it and calls us to bring our entire selves, our internal and external realities to him. And Psalm 65 is a song of praise after an abundant harvest. So there's been a huge harvest, and the people are celebrating that God has provided for them. And it calls God's people to celebrate with joy all that God provides, but especially after going through a season of feeling overwhelmed. So Psalm 65 is the psalm we're looking at this morning. And it's calling us to celebrate with joy everything that God provides, and especially after we've gone through a season of feeling overwhelmed. Psalm 65, we're going to read that in a moment. Let me ask you, before we get into it, if you want to look for it in your Bibles, it'll also be on the screen. It's just about in the middle of your Bible, if you have one. And So what do you do? What do you do when something overwhelms you, when something feels out of your control? How do you respond? What do you do? Whether it's because you've done something wrong, and now your life feels out of control, you can't put it right, or whether you're overwhelmed by... Um, some uncontrollable life circumstance, something that feels too big, too beyond you. What do you do? Isn't it frustrating when we don't feel like we have the control or the ability, the power to set something right? Isn't it difficult? It leaves us wondering whether it's an internal reality, something we've discovered that's just wrong with ourselves, or whether it's an external circumstance, something in our world or in our lives that feels overwhelmingly out of our control. It, it leaves us wondering, right, is there ever going to be a satisfying outcome to any of this? 
Will I always struggle with this? Why am I not better than I am? How can I improve? Or why is this chaos happening in my life? And what can I do about it? What do I do with the internal and external realities that overwhelm me? And Psalm 65 is this prayer of praise, this song of praise and thankfulness for times when God's people realize all along, despite their own sinful actions, their own internal chaos, and their chaotic circumstances, their external circumstances that are beyond their control, that actually behind all of it, God was overwhelming both their sin by forgiving us and overcoming our chaos by his power to set things right. So God is able, it's telling us, to produce abundant beauty and goodness in our lives even when we've sinned against him or even if we are experiencing chaotic circumstances that make our lives feel out of control. Let's read Psalm 65, this song that's inviting us to see that God overcomes what overwhelms us. Psalm 65. Praise awaits you, O God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those who you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength. You stilled the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Where morning dawns and where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and you water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of our God are filled with water. You provide people with grain for you have so ordained it or purposed it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless the crops. You crown the year with your bounty, and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks, and valleys are decked with grain. They shout for joy and sing. There's, uh, I used to live in St. Louis, Missouri, for six years before I lived here for the past six years, and I, uh, our church planted another site. We had two sites in our church, and we planted this new site in an area of St. Louis called Olivet. And in Olivet, uh, we met in the community center there to have our church services, and uh, I would go as a church intern. I would often go with our pastor, and we'd go around the town and just get to know people, get to know the businesses, get to know the people that live there in that area. And I got to know uh, this one young woman at the Olivet Starbucks. So I would go there a lot. I'd, I'd, I was in grad school. I'd write my papers and work on things, and I'd meet people while I was there. And she had grown up going to church. Her dad had helped in the ministry a lot. Um, but eventually, she largely rejected faith. And she moved away from her family. She went to art school, but she ran out of money. She'd gotten into this relationship with a guy, and she ended up pregnant. And her relationship was just wildly chaotic, a lot of ups and downs, just a lot of turmoil and then make, make up, but then it was just back to being awful. 
Um, and it just went up and down and up and down. And when she got pregnant, this guy promised to be there for her. Then he left her and started dating someone else. And she was crushed. She was just crushed. And so I would hang out at this Starbucks and get to know people. And as I got to know her more and more, she had opened up to me about her story. And as she was getting closer, you know, about six months into pregnancy, uh, she was wondering, what am I going to do? She was just becoming overwhelmed by the circumstances that she faced because she didn't have much money. She wondered how she'd be able to support herself and a newborn baby. She wondered if her career dreams that she'd been working for in school were now impossible. She wondered how she had gotten here and why she made the decisions that she'd made. She wondered about her faith, and she felt like, I'm not sure if God could ever take me back. She wondered and felt overwhelmed at what her life had become. And she wondered if she just made too many mistakes. So she was feeling overwhelmed by this internal fear about the future, overwhelmed by this guilt that she was feeling. She was overwhelmed by these external factors that felt beyond her control. She was going to have to find a way uh, to make enough money uh, to be able to find a career that would support her, to take on the new responsibilities and all the questions that she faced with her circumstances. And she kept wondering within all of that, have I walked too far from God to come back? And Psalm 65 is God's answer to what overwhelms us. It's teaching us to pray when life overwhelms us. And my friend had started to relearn, how do I pray? How do I talk to God in these circumstances? And The psalm does this by drawing our attention to how God overcomes the things that overwhelm us. How God overcomes the things that overwhelm us. But the thing that struck me as I looked at this prayer this week in Psalm 65 is that it actually isn't teaching us to pray for God's answers. It's not a complaint. It's not asking for God to do something. It's actually praying to celebrate or singing, actually, a celebration that God already has the answers. If you read this psalm carefully, you see over and over again, it says, God, you, 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 you provided, you enriched, you give, you gave, you, already he's done it, is what it's saying. It's not a prayer for God's answers to what overwhelms us, but a prayer of joy after God has already provided the answer. He already has the answers to what overwhelms us. And so Psalm 65 is this God's answer to what overwhelms us. And two things I want to look at first in this. God overcomes what, over, what overwhelms our inner selves, and God overcomes what overwhelms us in our outer circumstances. He overcomes all the things that overwhelm you internally in yourself. He also overcomes the things that overwhelm you externally, outside of yourself. So first, God overcomes what overwhelms our inner self, what's going on inside of us. Two thoughts here. What is this experience of inner chaos that we have in the first place? Like, why, why is there, what is this experience we have inside ourselves? And then what is God's answer to it? How does he respond? What is, what is the answer that he provides? So what is this experience of inner chaos? In verse 3, it says, When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Overwhelmed by sin. Overwhelmed by what we are, what is in us. You know, all it takes is a quick internet search or maybe a conversation around campus to know that everyone's looking for their inner self. Google will quickly connect you to the common questions people ask if you type in inner self into Google. And you'll find things immediately like, 
how do I unleash my inner self? How do I improve my inner self? How do I find my true self? In answer to all these questions, there are hundreds and hundreds of articles with titles like Eight Ways to Unleash Your Inner Confidence or Six Steps to Improve Your Inner Self. My favorite one was one of the top articles that came up was that the first step to improving your inner self was maintaining good hygiene. So the first step to greater wholeness in your inner self was to have greater cleanliness on your outer self. Which in some ways, right, makes sense. We are dignity. When we do things that, that give us and remind us of our dignity, that's true. But in another sense, it doesn't solve the problems of our inner self. Simply shaving or something wouldn't make me feel better. The assumption is in this, is that uh, you know, the, the, much of the advice says, don't let anyone make you feel bad about yourself. Uh, never lose confidence in yourself. But the assumption about the human personality that stands behind the majority of these kind of pop psychology articles is that we have this innate power that only if we could find it and tap into it, maybe with a little hard work and focus and discipline, we'd become the best version of ourselves. If only we could tap into what is already in there. At the very least, this deep hunger to find ourselves and discover our true power seems to indicate, though, that something is actually already lacking, isn't it? We've got to go find it because it's just not fully there. Why am I not the way I'm supposed to be? Why do I not live into the vision of how I think I'm supposed to be? We have this powerful inner self, and yet we can't fully access it. Something's wrong. We are looking to improve ourselves because we know, if we're honest, there's something wrong with us. There's something off, at least at times. And my question as I read some of these articles is thinking, why would we look to something wrong to set ourselves right? The difficulty with all this common advice out there is that you must look to yourself to improve yourself, but you're looking to yourself which is broken to improve what is broken. How does that work? What? Most honest people would acknowledge that they have problems, right? Problems we create through our mistakes or our prideful thoughts or through our disjointed feelings or the words and actions we've said and done that have not helped but have hurt. And how can I, how can I fix myself? How can I improve myself if myself is incomplete, is lacking, is at times very broken? It's like trying to fix a broken wrench with the broken wrench. But the Bible recognizes this far more complete view of humanity, and it tells us that if we look inside, we might not only find that we do truly have great power, beauty, and ability that we might not have ever realized was in us, and that's true because we're made in the image of God. We're made to reflect Him. But also, if we look in our inner self, we're not only going to find that. We're also going to find great pride or great brokenness or sin that we wished we'd never have to see. The Bible recognizes this more complete view of humanity. And it tells us that the only way to really become what we were meant to be is to allow God alone to be the true and powerful answer that transforms what we are, what we are into what we are meant to be. And in Psalm 65, verse 3, that I just mentioned to you, David, who wrote this psalm, is pointing out that there's a time when we are overwhelmed by sins. And this is what the Bible really means by our inner chaos, the thing that is wrong inside of us. It calls it sin. It's spiritual chaos, an inability to control ourselves in such a way that we only produce good, that we only feel positive, that we only have good outcomes, that we only have great relationships because of how we are. 
it tells us that we don't do any of that in a complete way, at least, because of what's in us, and it calls it sin. We want to become what we're meant to be, but we can't. And so it feels like there's this internal war going on within us, this chaotic disposition, and we aren't always winning. When we're overwhelmed by sins, David says, and that, only, that not only means that we have sin, but that there are times in our lives when the experience of sin so overwhelms us. And the word overwhelm, think about what that might mean. It prevails over you. That means sin is stronger than me. Or another way to say it would be, sin has gained power over me. To be overwhelmed by something means it's more powerful than you are. Uh, when I was I 10 or 11, I think it was, I almost drowned. I was just thinking recently about how terrible that is, but also how strange it is that every day I get up and I drink a glass of water. And water is something I control, right? And it's something I use all the time without thinking about it. It's something that I use because it's necessary and I need it. But the same drink of water from a glass, just a little bit of that going down my throat in a pool almost killed me. In, in one moment, it's like I, I'm in control of the water and it's fine. The next moment, it's something that's going to destroy me. All it takes is this little inhalation of water and down you go. I drink this liquid every day, but there was a time when it almost killed me. And, and suddenly, I was in a pool and this tiny, like, I just happened to open my mouth and it just went in my, I was very tired that day, just wasn't really paying attention. I had like coughed or something, but then I was in the pool and water went down my throat and I just started to take in a bunch of water, started to sink. And the water had power over me. I could not escape it. No matter what I tried, that's the, the awful feeling of drowning, is that you are powerless to save yourself because you're dying. It took someone else. In this case, it was my mom. Not The lifeguard missed it, but my mom from across the pool as a 10-year-old, she sees me and runs over and pulls me out. She rescued me from drowning. Um, and, and in the same way, that's what this, the Bible's talking about. That's the real experience of sin. That's what sin is actually like. Psalm 38, 4 says, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Like a burden too heavy to bear. I'm not able to handle the power of sin. And at times it becomes abundantly clear that something is so off in my life and I can't fix it. I can't rescue myself from it. I can't save me from it. I was thinking about all the conversations I've had on campus in the last few years with students and I think about uh, one guy who'd come to me and said, I feel unable to stop watching pornography. No matter how hard I try, I can't. It had power over him. I thought about the girl who came to me and said, I have a serious issue with food. I, I, whenever I'm distressed, I, have, I eat late at night when no one's watching. And it has power over me. I can't stop distorting how I use food. I was thinking about another person who told me that they anxiously worry about everything that could go wrong all the time, and their anxiety feels like it has power over them. They can't make it stop. I I was thinking about the person who came and told me that I have to get everything right, and I can't stop. I can't rest until everything seems perfect. But I never seem to be able to reach perfection, no matter how hard I work, no matter how hard I try. It has power over me. I was thinking about the athlete who came and said, 
I have to perform over and over and over again, and the thing I loved now feels like a burden. It has this power over me. I'm never good enough or worth it unless I perform perfectly or I get it right. I have to prove myself. All these experiences, you know what I'm talking about? They begin to seem inevitable. Look, it's just the way it is. I don't know how to fix it. I can't change it. And sometimes we despair and we just keep falling under the weight of it. It overwhelms us, right? We're trying to solve our own problems with food or sex or worry or work or comparison or comfort, and we find that just in trying to do that, we just create more problems for ourselves. It never seems to work. Because what happens is we're just using stuff around us to try to deal with the deficiency that's in us. Something we realize we need but we don't have, and we look somewhere else to get it, but we're looking at our own solutions to find it, and they're just not working. It's a vicious cycle. You know, the word or the verb to sin or to commit iniquity is another way the Bible talks about it. The word literally means to bend, twist, or distort. What does that mean then? Like, like a tree that's unable to stand upright in the powerful winds of a hurricane. No matter how much the tree keeps trying to snap back into its normal position, the winds just keep pushing it and bending it. That's what sin is like. It's this powerful force that comes against you. Or like, uh, it's like a twisting or a bentness. Like my grandmother who passed away last fall, in the last few years of her life, her hips were so off that she couldn't stand up straight. She had to use a walker no matter how hard she tried. She couldn't walk the right way because it was twisted inside of her. This is, it's not an abstract con- uh, concept. This internal distortion, this bentness in us is what affects our relationships. It what affects, it's what affects how we do everything else that we do. Something in us is off, and so it comes out in another way in our relationships and in our work. Even when we try to play and have fun sometimes, things within us seem broken. The Bible's saying that when we take a look at ourselves, we'll see that we have something bent inside. And the bentness in us is that we focus on ourselves. Our chief problem, our chief distortion, is that we look to ourselves for the solutions to life. Like the wrench that can't fix itself because it's already broken. We can't fix ourselves because we already have something broken within us. So in one sense, then, all those articles about looking inside yourself to find yourself are both true and false. They are right to encourage us to discover what is truly in us, but at the same time, they are wrong to tell us to look to ourself to solve all of our self-related problems. Our main problem is self-centeredness, and this distorted reality that car- is what carries us into all the other problems of our life. And that's why it feels overwhelming, because it's in us. It goes everywhere with us. The thing about sin in the Bible is that it can sometimes be difficult to distinguish between sin itself and the actions and its consequences. The Bible puts them together. Like Isaiah 30 says, This sin will become for you like a high wall that's cracked and bulging and collapses suddenly and in an instant. Sin automatically becomes like something in your life that falls apart. Or in Numbers 32, 23, if you fail to do this thing that God had said was good, you will have sinned against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Your, your sin will find you out. It's like a detective that cracks the case every time. That is, sin has this inevitable effect of revealing and producing. It will inevitably expose what we really are. It will reveal what's really in us, but it also inevitably produces consequences. So in a sense, what's 
notice it doesn't say that God's going to do that. God does judge sin, but actually the first judgment is sin judges you itself. It produces, it punishes you, it destroys us and breaks us. And that's why God is so insistent throughout the entire Bible that sin must be rooted out of our communities and it must, we must have heart surgery on ourselves by Him in order to remove sin from the souls of sinners because sin exacts a cost. It exacts a cost, and that cost is at least internal or relational chaos. Whenever something is off in your relationships or in yourself, you can be assured it's called sin. And that means things are not the way they're supposed to be. So if that's the experience of inner chaos, of internal things that are out of our control. What is God's answer to this inner chaos? And in verse 3 and then 4, we see the answer that God has already provided. It says, when, when we were overwhelmed by our sins, you forgave our transgressions. Um, remember, this is a prayer or a song of praise and thankfulness. This is a psalm of great joy. And, and one of the reasons is right here. When we were overwhelmed by ourselves, the things in us that cannot seem to be fixed, good news, God forgave our transgressions. Sin is like this overwhelming weight on us, this disposition, this bentness that distorts us like a tree in a hurricane. It overwhelms us. We are unable to get out of the chaos. But then if sin overwhelms us, God already has a way to overcome it. God overcomes the sin that overwhelms us. How does He do it? He forgives us. He doesn't hold it against us. And, and you might think, if you were really thinking deeply about what we just said, wait, but how can this be? Didn't you say that sin exacts a cost? Doesn't it automatically have a consequence built into it? Does God just say, ah, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Is that, is that what forgiveness really is? If, if sin exacts a cost, who pays it? Well, the word forgive here is more literally atone for. And we've, it's translated forgive because that makes more sense to us in general. But the word atone means to offer a ransom for something, to offer a payment. So what it's saying is, who's paying the cost? God. When my sin, which is costing me, overwhelmed me, God paid the cost of my sin. That's what verse 3 says. God paid the cost of my sin. This is why it says that God forgives us. It doesn't mean he, he just pretends that we didn't do anything wrong. It doesn't mean that he's like, well, I'll just decided I won't hold it against you and just let it go. It instead means I won't hold it against you because I already paid the full cost of it. I've already paid the full cost of it. A few years ago, so part of the way that my job works is I actually raise money to do this work. So there's a bunch of people across the country who care so much about uh, what happens in your lives, for example, here on a college campus, that they give up their own resources in order to help me do my job here, which I find incredible that people would do that. And there was one year, though, that I had a really challenging year where uh, about $30,000 worth of money that I needed to bring in in order to, pr to do the ministry I was doing was suddenly not available, $30,000. And I couldn't, I had no idea what I was going to do. How is this going to work? And yet, right about a week later, someone had heard about this and personally vowed to give that money to make the ministry keep running. Someone decided to pay it for me. 
And so he covered over what was missing, uh, what I didn't have. And this wasn't because I had done something wrong. So this isn't even about direct sin or something. This was just, I felt incredible gratitude. I was amazed that someone would put $30,000 of their own money on the line for me. So he substituted his own resources for me. He put it in my place rather than keeping it for himself. So even then, even when sin wasn't involved, it still cost somebody. When I lost it and he gave it, now he took the $30,000 hit rather than me. It still costs something. Everything costs something. So imagine even more. It's not just someone kindly um, covering for something that maybe you don't have. But this sin is talking about God is paying for something that you actually owe. There's a story like this in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 7, the story of two men who owed money to a moneylender. And a moneylender would be somebody who loans out money and then collects interest later when you pay them back, kind of like a bank can do if you take out a loan. So they borrowed money, they took out a loan, and then they owed that money plus interest back. But one man owed a year and a half's worth of salary. So every single paycheck every month for a year and a half is what he owed. And another man owed two months' salary. So he owed two paychecks. And the money lenders came because it was time to collect the money. And the money lender came, and it says that... uh, When the moneylender came to collect what was rightfully his, neither man had the money to pay him back. They had nothing to pay him with. And the moneylender decided to forgive the debts of both of them. That is, he canceled their debts. He did not hold their debts against them. He told them they no longer owed any money. It's like owing $60,000 on your student loans after college, and one day the bank tells you, you don't have to pay a penny of it back, not a single penny. How relieved would you be? How amazed? Because you owed that money. You got something for it, and if you don't pay them back, you're essentially stealing. Someone gave you a $60,000 opportunity, and then you didn't repay them like you'd agreed. The same thing happens, in a way, with forgiveness, because everything has a cost. So when the moneylender forgives or cancels the debt of the two men, do you see what he means? He means that the paid, he paid the cost instead of them. He should have received thousands and thousands of dollars back, and yet he ate the cost himself. This psalm is pointing us to Jesus because the whole flow of the Bible is that God forgives, and he does so most fully and abundantly through Jesus on the cross who pays the debt of our sin. See, he's the one who took it on. In the Old Testament, there's this sacrificial system. Atonement was done by bringing an animal, which is innocent, and it was put on an altar and killed on, in, on your behalf. And the idea was that anybody who brought this innocent animal was watching something else actually die in your place, saying, sin costs so much that it yields death eventually. But now this innocent thing suffered in your place. And sometimes they would actually, the priests would have people uh, lay their hands on the animal and, and pray before the animal was killed. And they would confess their sins. They would confess the things that had broken their community or that were broken inside themselves. And they would confess it as if an a-, a symbolic action of saying, now this rests on you. So the overwhelming burden that was crushing us is now crushing someone else. And in Christ, that's the fullest picture of forgiveness we'll ever see because Jesus came to take that on himself. God pays the cost through putting down his own life instead of putting ours down. That's what it means to be forgiven. And so now it says in verse 4, what some of the results of this. Blessed are those you choose, O Lord, and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with good things from your house and your holy temple. 
what happens? What's the result? God brings us close in order to forgive or pay the cost. The cost is removed. There's no barrier between us anymore. God restores us to relationship with him, and he restores us to relationship with others. And it says he fills us with good things, right? He satisfies us now. What this is saying is the result of God's forgiveness is that we are restored to him. He paid the cost of what was costing us in our internal chaos. And now he brings us near to him to experience all that is good again. So look, if you've trusted that Christ has substituted himself for you, that all that was burdening you was laid on him, then you have this freedom, this peace, as the Bible puts it. This inner striving is no longer necessary because he is the one who will make you whole as you live with him. And you know what else this does? It frees us to enjoy all other parts of our lives. Haven't you ever noticed that when you're overwhelmed by something internally, even if you're getting great things in your life, even if good stuff is happening, you can't enjoy it, can you? When you're overwhelmed internally or you have these relational uh, conflicts and struggles that you are a part of, it's hard to enjoy everything else, every good thing that you have because you don't feel whole or okay, so it makes it hard to enjoy. But when you know that the debt has been paid. It has been canceled. And you look instead not only to your inner self, but you look outside yourself to see the one who paid the cost of everything that you might have ever owed in your life. It frees you to enjoy all the rest of the things in your life because God comes to give you what is really, truly good, not just spiritually, but also tangibly. Every good thing in your life then can be enjoyed because God is the bringer of all that is good, not just in our souls and our inner self, but also in all the outer things. And that's what the rest of the psalm is about. God overcomes what overwhelms us internally, but he also overcomes what would over overwhelm us externally. And he gives us good things. Verse 7. What is, what is some of our... This one's going to be shorter because... The point of part of what the psalm is doing and why it starts with forgiveness is saying there's so much else in this psalm that's about God's abundance, his provision, his incredible ability to even out of a bad year, make it a good year. That's what it's, that was something that really struck me, right? Verse, uh, verse 11, you crown the year with your bounty, your carts overflow with abundance. They're talking about things overwhelmed me internally and yet God made it a great year. That's the kind of God that he is. And so this next part will be shorter because the first part's dealing with all the internal stuff that prevents us from relationship and then also prevents us from enjoying the good things that we have. So the second part's really about enjoying the good things that we have because God is also in control of those. He overcomes external problems as well. What's the experience that you and I have of outer chaos? I get this from verse 7. It says, that God is our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth. He stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. He stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of, that, of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. What's that referring to? That's referring to things that are bigger processes that are bigger than yourself, bigger than you. So in the ancient world, and maybe still today, but especially in the ancient world, especially in pagan mythology, but including in Israelite stories, the ocean raging was a picture of the chaos of nature, of, of the ways in which the natural world is way bigger and more powerful than us. So they often use things in the Bible, this picture of roaring seas really is a symbolic thing for, yes, the actual seas roaring, but it means natural things that are so much bigger and more powerful and beyond ourselves. 
And then when it says the turmoil of the nations, it's saying the process that happens between nations in which there's conflicts and wars and all these bigger uh, geopolitical things that are happening that we can't control. No one person is really in charge of. Things bigger than ourselves. Uncontrollable elements of nature and national politics. That's what it's getting at. It's saying externally to us, the world is a huge, overwhelming place in many ways. However, it says that in verse uh, 6, God formed the mountains by His power. And then it says He can still, in verse 7, the roaring seas. He can still the turmoil or calm the turmoil of the nations. What it's saying is that um, while the mountains seem really secure in themselves and the seas seem like menacingly wild places, the natural world can be a powerful wild place. The psalmist knows better than to think of these objects as either trustworthy or terror-worthy in themselves. In fact, God created the mountains, so even the most secure-looking structures in nature come from Him, the one who can create stability. And the most wild, unexpected, tumultuous events that it can occur to us, He can calm them. That's what it's getting at. Everything, then, is subject to its master, and God is the one who created them and can control them. The point is then that God is the Lord of everything. There's not one square inch of the world that's outside of his control. There's not one square inch of turmoil or chaos that he can't change or set right. I was noticing in the news this week, because it's the five-year anniversary of that plane that disappeared in the Indian Ocean, the Malaysian flight MH370. And I was thinking about this, that far more cars crash every year and people die in car crashes than in plane flights. And yet we obsess over the plane flights. We want to know what happened because there's some other component. Car accidents are horrific and terrible enough, yet there's something that much more to many of us about plane crashes, right? It feels like this thing, you're, you're so out of control, you're up in the air. And there people are still trying to figure out what happened on that flight. What went wrong? Because we're terrified of those bigger things than us. Plane crashes and terrorist attacks and nuclear war and biochemical weapons, failing economies, right? We're terrified of hurricanes and tornadoes and crop failure. And in one sense, rightly so. These are terrifying things, seemingly uncontrollable forces of nature or national politics, fearful things. And yet this psalm is saying God is in control and can overrule all of them. God's answer then to our outer chaos, to the external circumstances that are uncontrollable to us, is to bring his power and his righteousness. Verse 5, you answer us with awesome or powerful and righteous deeds, God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth. What's it saying? God works powerfully. He already has the answers to these things. He also works righteously. And both of those things are really good news because power indicates his ability to deal with what overwhelms us. And righteousness indicates that his power has a really great direction. It's the right direction, righteousness, right direction. It's going towards the place of setting all things right. It'd be far more terrifying if God was powerful but not good. Because he could do a lot of stuff, but it might not end up in a good place. But if he's powerful and he's good and he's righteous, then all the ways in which he uses his power are to set things right, to restore what is broken, to overwhelm what overwhelms us. That's the nature 
of our God. And what we're seeing is that in the world, in national politics, and everywhere, God, even to wicked people, does good things, even if he doesn't do all of them all at once every time. And so part of this psalm is getting at uh, the nature of God, which tells us that from people to protozoa, from national politics to all natural events, if you see anything good happening, happening, going in the right direction, anything terrible that gets calmed down, that gets national things that could go to war and suddenly they're not, despite all the people involved and all the confusing things that are happening, if anything good happens anywhere, it says in this, in verse 8, where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. The whole earth is filled with your wonders. Anywhere anything wonderful is happening, it's from Him. It's Him overruling what overwhelms our world. So God is the one who overcomes what overwhelms us internally. He's also the one who overcomes what overwhelms us externally in all these huge, massive circumstances that are way beyond us. God is the God. Then if you look at verse 9 to 13, just to summarize this, it says, God cares for the whole land, the whole world. The picture is of incredible abundance. After we see the inner and external chaos, there's this incredible picture of God saying, don't you see, like, I can bring a massive harvest out of a broken world. That's not impossible for me. I can still make your life really, really, really good again. Will you entrust it to me? Will you praise me, the one who has the power to actually do it? Who of you can calm all the problems of national politics? Who of you can overcome natural disasters? Who of you can even take care of your own personal inner chaos? Who can do it? Can you? And the end of the psalm is saying, you can't, but here's the one who can. God shows this picture of incredible productivity. And who doesn't want to be productive? As you get older, maybe you'll find yourself doing what I do, which is reading constant articles about how to become better at more productivity. You feel like there's so much to do. There's so many things to be responsible for. Every week there's a new article about how the most productive people in the world get up at 4 a.m. And if you adopt all their habits and meditate for 20 hours a day, also work 24 hours a day, you can do everything that they do and more. See, you will be a wildly successful person. And then you feel exhausted by the end of the first week that you try that. And you look to this and you go, oh, God, God's the one who abundantly produces. God has the best productivity plan in the universe because it's just not hard for him. He's powerful and he knows the right direction to take it when I don't, when I'm overwhelmed by my own life, by myself and the things around me. Even the most productive people in the world are only that productive because God gave it. He produced a harvest in his kindness is what it's saying. God can create an overabundance of good things. But, so when we turn and we read the first verse, which we spent no time on really, praise awaits you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. Or the ESV says, praise is due to you, God. Well, well, either way, whether you say praise is due to you, it's owed to you, like a, like a library book that you forgot to turn in, or like a thank you card that's five months too late, What he's saying, what David writing is saying, God, in our community, we've come to actually recognize that this is true of you, that you handle our inner selves, you handle our outer circumstances, and praise awaits you now, Lord. Uh, this, the idea is the same, no matter whether you say praise awaits you or praise is due to you. The idea is this, God, our praise is waiting for you now. The worship that is only due to you because of your ability to rescue us, 
We, found our, we are not able to rescue ourselves. We are not able to deliver ourselves from all the bigger things in the world that happen to us. And so, Lord, we're ready now. We are ready to praise you. We are ready to thank you now. We get it. We finally get it. We missed it. We, we know you've been waiting. Praise awaits you. Uh, now it's ready. And we're ready to give it to you because we missed it before. But now we are overjoyed because we realize that you give us abundant provision. You provide for our hearts spiritually. You satisfy all the bodily things we need tangibly. You provide joy for us on every front, every part of our lives. You have overcome what overwhelmed us internally and externally, both personally and internationally. You alone have the power and the right direction to do it. We missed it before. We tried to do it ourselves, but now we can't stop praising and thanking you for it. We see all that you do in the world, that you are the hope of the ends of the earth, that you provide abundant joy. And we stand amazed that you would actually invite us to be a part of it. That we, you, it says in verse 4, you would invite us into your home. And then in verse 9 to 13, that you would give us abundant things. Any joy we have comes from you internally and externally. So, Lord, we see you, all that you do in the world to bring hope and joy. And we stand amazed. We are a part of it that we could be recipients of your beauty and your goodness. Thank you for overwhelming or overcoming our chaos. And in your goodness, your righteousness, and your power, you are redirecting, you are overcoming, you are overruling what is broken in this world in order to produce lasting joy. God, this is who you are, and you have come and called us to sing to you for joy. Friends, I want to have a stand here at the end to pray Psalm 65. We're just going to read it out loud together. And then we're going to take communion. But this is the God that we have, and we want to praise the way this psalm is teaching us to praise. So we're going to say it together. Would you stand, and would you pray this? Praise awaits you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds. God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have prepared it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your cart overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. 
The meadows are covered with flocks, and the valleys are decked with grain. They shout for joy and sing. You may be seated. Friends, when we take communion, what we are doing is celebrating. Jesus taught us, he said, whenever you remember me, take communion together as a body, as a church, because what we are remembering is that he laid down his life in order to take the cost of all that is wrong within us on himself. And it says that when he poured out his blood, this is for the forgiveness of our sins. And when he forgave our sins, he invited us into, his, into a relationship with him that would then produce for us not just nice forgiveness, which is incredible, but also an everlasting life of goodness. So he doesn't only redeem us, he restores us. And the picture in this psalm is that we are being restored to abundant goodness. That's what he's come to do. So I want to invite you as you take communion, uh, if this isn't true of you, if you haven't entrusted your life to Christ, if you haven't let him pay the cost, and I would encourage you, don't take communion. It's just a symbol of what the reality really is. Turn to the reality himself. Turn to the one who actually takes the cost and pray a prayer like this. When I was overwhelmed what is, with what is in me, Lord, I turn to you. Would you forgive me? Would you take the cost? Would you carry the burdens that I can't carry? I entrust my life to you. And if you've done that, then take communion because you're just remembering like a harvest feast. A feast would have come out of this harvest. We're taking a feast that God himself is our very bread. His, he says his blood is our wine. It's a symbol of him pouring out the abundance of his life in order to give us life. So as you pray, as you reflect, and eventually we're going to sing again, uh, why don't you hold these things, hold the bread and the cup until we all can take it together. Because the other picture of this psalm is that it's done communally. When we were overwhelmed by our sins, when we saw the turmoil all around us, so when we take it, we're doing this collectively. We together are this people who've received God's abundant joy and goodness. So then we'll stand and we'll sing after we eat together this meal of God's harvest, his goodness to us through laying down his life on our behalf. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Take